I recently finished a fascinating new book by Naomi Klein called Doppelganger about her being mistaken for Naomi Wolf, the existential crisis that results when you become responsible for what someone else is doing and you can't find yourself outside of who people think you are on accident again and again. What does it mean to create yourself to come into your own when people forget who you are anyway at the end of the day? She uses personal experiences in a really interesting way as a jumping off point to get into the nitty gritty of the history of the double in movies, books, etc. And I'm going to expand that into talking about the SMCU. I think the less you know the better when you start reading Doppelganger. It's so sprawling and weird. Just hail on for the ride and you'll enjoy it more. Trust that it'll make sense the more you read. Same with this episode. It's going to be kind of twisty, but hang on, it'll all make sense when I'm done tying everything together. It'll seem unrelated, but it's not. So let's talk about the SMCU in the context of the mirror world. Before getting to the book, keep in mind three things. One, the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, my life is for itself and not for a spectacle. As well as the quote from Espasson Savage, deep fake on me to the unprepared stage. We're talking about the stage of life. Third, keep in mind the SMCU as I talk about first a bunch of examples of movies and books that have used doppelgangers as the main plot point. And we are starting with The Student of Prague which is a German art film considered to really help popularize German art films, make them a more legitimate piece of media. This silent horror film, the first of its kind, from 1913. It's called The Student of Prague, but actually a German title translation is A Bargain with Satan. It's been remade several times, as recently as 2004, and it is kind of influenced by quite an amalgamation from Edgar Allan Poe to Faust Mephistopheles, who we talked about in my TXT reference guide episode about the name chapter Temptation's inspiration. So some classic literature was tied into this story, which is set in 1820. It follows a student of Prague who's really poor, desperate for cash, This guy, Scapinelli, offers him 100k in gold in exchange for anything he has on him. Like, give me any belonging you have with you, and I'll give you the money. So he does sign away whatever Scapinelli wants, which ends up being his shadow, his reflection. So the other version of him, the one that would appear in a mirror, is not present. Now has a life totally severed from his own, that he just signed away. However, the student is trying to look on the bright side because now he can woo this countess who is was out of his social class, but now he's filthy rich and wants to flex that in front of her. But every time they're about to have an intimate moment, it's disrupted by his shadow, who basically becomes his villain, terrorizing him, getting in the way of him, continuing this relationship with his dream girl. The girl who has a crush on this student plays the role of Tattletale to the Baron, saying he's trying to get with the Countess, and the Baron then challenges him, the student, to a duel. The Countess's dad begs him, I heard you're going into a fight against the Baron. Please, please, please don't kill him. Don't go so hard you kill him. We need to keep the family legacy going, and he's the last living heir. He promises not to, and he doesn't, but he kind of does, because his shadow kills him, his double. So the first OG version of him tries to shoot and kill the double, which kind of works, but then he dies too. Both versions dead. And the movie ends with Scapinelli showing up to rip up the contract like confetti, gleefully prance around. 
Then the double kind of isn't dead and sits back on top of the OG student's grave, holding a raven, staring at the viewer menacingly. Another unexpected K-pop time, by the way, is this connects to my episode about Vix and other episodes about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which used the same lighting technique this movie helped bring about, but that's neither here nor there. The things to remember about this story are the fact his shadow turned against him, the fact the shadow kept interfering in his love life, the fact that him and his shadow were intrinsically bound in terms of fate, the premise of the afterlife, death, legacies, and the social class element. Keep all that in mind, but now we're going to talk about The Double, a story by Fyodor Dostovsky. From 1846, it also did become a movie back in 2013. The Double is about this antisocial character whose doctor prescribes him cheerful company. Those are the words used, prescribing him cheerful company, hopefully, that will cure his antisocial ailment. He decides to pursue this cheerful company at his boss's daughter's birthday party, uninvited. Boss's daughter's birthday party, uninvited. Layers of issues here. He gets kicked out, of course, and because of that, as fate would have it, he ends up walking around and crossing paths with his double, his doppelganger. The rest of the story follows the evolution of their relationship. The two versions of him are good friends, then bitter enemies, with the there-can-only-be-one-of-us takeover mentality and jealousy of the OG guy because his double is more well-liked. His double is his opposite, so his double is social, likable, warm, friendly, and a hit with his co-workers. The story ends with him carted off to an asylum as he sees more doubles multiplying, like a big amount of doubles of himself now. From this story note the birthday premise, celebration of life, and his exit from that celebration is what causes him to interact with his double, who represents the polar opposite of him. And note the there can only be one mentality where he basically is at war with himself. Now, a classic short story, The Shadow, by Hans Christian Andersen. He calls the main character in this story the learned man, the learned foreign man, who is new to town, and then the shadow is the shadow. For my sake, just to help me keep it straight too, I'm calling the learned man A, and person B, the shadow. So A moves to a warmer climate than he's used to, where he gets to see a shadow, because in the cold climate, it was darker out more often and clouds blocked the chance to see a shadow. Quite symbolic that our shadows only come out when there is light. And this super hot climate means that all the townspeople don't really get out and socialize and go about their business until nightfall when it's cooler. So they all go out when their shadows cannot physically be produced. A becomes fascinated when he first starts to see B during the days and writes a bunch of stories about him. Stories like, you cannot make this up how incredible he is how fascinating and abnormal he is. Years go by, and he gets a knock from B. His shadow pays him a visit and is super well-dressed, so he shows up with a ton of bling, looking like he's worth a million bucks, and spent it all. He says he just felt inclined to come home one more time before death, so this visit will put his mind at ease. B gushes to A, catching him up to speed like I've been living the life. Now I want to get married and settle down. I've had a great fortune in life, so many adventures. I really feel like I've lived a very full human experience. 
A is happy for him, but seems to get distraught. Like, you really experienced the world while I was here writing about it, not witnessing it, not really living as an active member of it but a passive observer. So B says this was a rookie mistake, basically, and says what you need to do is travel. So come with me on a trip. You can be the shadow. So now A and B have switched places. So A is taking a trip with B as his shadow. So now A is the shadow. This princess, who is deemed too sharp-sighted, in the author's words, that's her main flaw, susses out why they're there, and she knows this traveler is having problems with his shadow. She ends up dancing with and falling in love with the shadow. So in this moment, I think that shadow is A, but the confusion is intentional. We'll get to that. She's like, I love this guy, but I can't, like, be with him long-term unless I know he also has, quote, well-grounded knowledge. So she asks him a question to prove he's smart, basically, street smart, and he can't answer. But he says, look, I know someone who can. Let me go fetch B. He knows me really well. We've grown up together. He knows how to answer this. He will provide the answer for sure, which doesn't happen. The princess in the shadow get engaged. Again, still kind of confused who's still the shadow here she's engaged to, but it's kept secret from the other. So if she's engaged to A, B doesn't know. If it's B, A doesn't know. And that's how they like it. B pities A and tells him poor thing thinks he's become a real man, but he's always been the shadow. It's a little like in Spongebob. I know classic Spongebob references are my weird staple, but it's really like the Spongebob episode when Spongebob pretends to be dumb so Patrick looks smarter, and then Patrick starts telling his folks, oh poor thing, he thought he was once smart, but he's always been dumb. Like that buying his own BS situation. The bee in this story is doing that. Like, oh, poor shadow. Guy thought he was once a real man that turned into a shadow. I had no part in that. At the end now, it seems like B is the one who married the princess because, quote, the learned man heard nothing of all these festivities for he had already been executed, unquote. The end, lots to unpack there. I'll let you kind of just sit with it and ponder what the most symbolic details are worth remembering from that. But let's move on to Duel, a movie that just came out in 2002. Duel is about a terminally ill woman, and she decides to clone herself so when she passes, her family has less to grieve. They don't have to grieve as much because she'll still be there in cloned form. It's a miracle, though, and she ends up surviving. So now she tries to have the double decommissioned, which doesn't work. So this double does not consent to being decommissioned and therefore stays out and about. And seems to be someone her family takes a stronger liking to than OG Sarah. Sarah's double takes her to this I survived support group, basically, where they talk about their experiences of almost dying. They end up bonding and deciding let's just try to be friends and live outside the rules of there can only be one of us. Let's peacefully coexist. Turns out the double was just full of it when she said that. Sarah was so naive. Meanwhile, Sarah's double was still plotting to poison her. They're supposed to fight to the death because apparently there really only can be one of them, according to the laws of the universe in this movie. So the double shows up to the duel and claims to be OG Sarah, and says the clone Sarah didn't show up. There's a whole investigation 
and a judge has to determine, yeah, you're right, you are the OG version. So now legally, she does prove, the double proves, she's the OG Sarah, and can now fully live as Sarah. However, she doesn't really win by replacing her, because now she also takes on everything OG Sarah had. All the despair, the helplessness, the worries, the issues, the fears. She has to live with all the negative, too. From this story, I would say the most important things to flag are, again, that there can only be one of us mentality. The aspect of the clone coming about in the first place basically to prevent the need to grieve, the desire to avoid grieving, and the ability for your double to be the perfect embodiment of you. How different are you really? That sort of thought process. Lastly, Operation Shylock by Philip Roth who is kind of problematic. He's an acquired taste of an author, but this book really is his his big top-tier writing peak, I would say. I have some issues with the book, but there's a lot that's worth thinking about that he brings up. So anyway, this story was published in 93. It's set, though, in the 80s. Intentionally messing with the reader, the main character is Philip Roth. The author's name is Philip Roth. The main character is Philip Roth. And in the book, he encounters another Philip Roth, his double. The story is fiction, but then later, Roth went on a strange promo tour for this book, basically saying a government agency pressured him to label it fiction, when in reality he was exposing the truth about something. And in the book, he plays an investigative reporter, basically, someone who's going to cover and interview this leader. And the book is set with the backdrop of this war crime trial that actually happened in real life. So he really messes with your perception of, is this about true events or your fictional ones? They're all really messed with, blurred together into one weird picture. He also told an interviewer, this book is as true and believable as an FDA label. And for someone who is critical of government, not sure what to make of his way of putting that, which I think was the point. In his real life, Philip did have a psychotic breakdown moment after he took this post-operative drug that actually it was pulled off the market after some side effects were that went unpublished were then discovered and published. Like the fact the side effect of the psychosis was not made public knowledge enough, that lack of transparency caused some countries to ban it. So that happened to him, and in the book his character kind of goes through that. So you don't know in the story how much of this could just be a psychotic episode that he is imagining. Philip finds out other Philip is preaching in his name. This diasporism described as like reverse Zionism. And he says, I'm going to go confront other Philip about using my likeness. I was going there anyway to Israel to interview a Holocaust survivor, and he names a real person who is a real survivor. Further messing with any stability that comes from feeling like you know the truth versus fiction is the fact that this book came out the same year Israel Supreme Court overturned a verdict and realized they got the wrong guy in this case that was the backdrop of the story. That's a whole side story, but it's really fascinating. And the point is, this came out at quite a time when it comes to dealing with what is real, what that even means, and verifiable. 
The Phillips mess with people, pretend to be each other, impersonate each other. There's a lot that happens, long story short. The fact that Philip names other Philip what translates to Moses' belly button in Yiddish. So basically he thinks, haha, I've separated myself from you by giving you a new name and it's a stupid name. But turns out when you give your doppelganger a stupid name, everyone else will mix you up too with it. Your nickname is now that. That backfired. You could also read into the fact his girlfriend's name is Jinx, the other Philip, and that other other Philip, while impersonating other Philip, is hired to spy under the guise of preaching diasporism what other Philip had been doing. So Philip A, pretending to be Philip B, is hired to do the work Philip B was doing before he met Philip A. Let's talk about some examples from SM Entertainment artists of their own experiences with their doubles, then get to the big picture of what the heck all this means. We have to, of course, talk about Kai's short films. Kai has many versions of himself in his debut short film and others, and sometimes it's kind of a mystery which him is in action and which him is the underdog observer. At times, is it him or a different version of him? Who's the OG Kai? In the glass box, in the mirrors, the maze of mirrors made out of smoke, dancing with his reflection, filming a movie on a set. He dances in sync with his reflection in the mirror. The different Kais are encountering each other in odd ways. But the theme of a double being you, the you emphasis of who your double really is at the end of the day, that's really the forefront of the Peaches era short film, which was narcissist-inspired about the story of someone in love with their reflection, causing them to fall into the lake. Some dance breaks in that film don't show a physical Kai, just his shadow dancing. Then the 2023 short film, which shows what could be OG Kai or an alter ego one, who gets into some literally bloody trouble, criminal behavior caught on CCTV. He's also in a passenger seat of a car, and it's unclear if anyone's driving, so his ghostly self, his shadow, might have taken the wheel. If so, super symbolic. Evil Kai is severed from good pure Kai, at times completely meant to be very distinct. Just like in Taman's videos, evil Taman from the night of the car crash, the robbery, etc. is meant to kind of be separate from good Taman. However, Taman uses reflections, mirrors, etc. a lot in his videos to show he's literally having to confront, go face to face with that side of him and remember that side of him is him. He can't fully separate himself from it and its consequences. And this alternate Taman also is hard to take a clean break from because we see like in the Press Your Number video, he realizes he's both. He is the victim and the perpetrator. Quick blink and you'll miss it changes show that he's the one tied up in ropes versus the one who did the tying, for example. He is kidnapping, is hurting himself. This sense of doubling is also obviously huge in Espa's story. Check out the Espa and Quanya deep dive episodes for more of that backstory. But you know, their digital alter egos, they often reckon with in their short films how much of those alter egos is the real them versus an image they're projecting online for fitting in sake. And the times they have to grapple with what happens when their 3D selves enter their 4D world, what that means. They dimension hop. They also at one point are trapped in boxes behind glass. The EXO members were in that trap state once too, at least once. Maybe their alter egos kidnap them and trap them. 
Or maybe they trapped their alter egos. There's of course what we talked about at length in episodes of NCT Talk, like the past and future monologue about the sea of unconscious and how their story refers to this sense of connecting people to people, different sides to yourself, the unconscious and conscious minds mingling. Then what seems super, super symbolic in hindsight and is all about this doubling, a different side of yourself simultaneously doing stuff in the world is EXO's introductory mama-era monologue about the force of evil, the tree of life split in half, the twin forces that divided, created things that looked alike, traveled apart, I'm paraphrasing sort of, these legends were split up into mirrored realms. Remember, the words were, I believe, they shall stand on the same ground but see different skies. And eventually the legends are thought to greet each other again and try to reunite into a perfect route to open up a new world. Also in Exo's early days, they had that communication with the surreal effect of using the mirrors to communicate. Like, with a wave of their arm, suddenly in the mirror was not their reflection staring back at them, but a different member. Mirrors are really big in some shiny videos, too. Like, in Tell Me What To Do, actually, there's a moment like that where Key stares in the mirror, which seems to trigger, right afterwards, a flashback to that pivotal car crash scene. So the night where an alter ego is acting up comes to mind after you have to stare at yourself in the mirror. To make sense of all this, let's get to Sigmund Freud and how he defined the uncanny. What is the uncanny valley theory really all about? Freud believed that previous definitions of the uncanny were lacking and too one-dimensional. Some scholars, philosophers, etc. theorized that what was uncanny, what made you feel uncomfortable about how life like something seemed, although something still seems a bit off about it, had to do with psychology. Your feelings, feelings as you look at it. Like a lifelike doll, right? Like mannequins. Those can give you a creepy, creeped out sense of the uncanny. It's too lifelike, but not lifelike. And that weird plane of existence between the two, our brains struggle to compute and be okay with. Freud argued this was too simplistic, though, to just say, if it stokes a sense of discomfort or fear, that's uncanny, because it's too lifelike. That's a part of it, but it's not just that it made you feel like it's kind of stoking a memory or familiarity of some kind in a weird way, a weird distorted type of deja vu and confusion about what's real and what's this weird creation, this manufactured thing. He also said it's not just psychological, but aesthetic. That previous ways of talking about what was uncanny focused on stuff that was gory, ugly, frightening, or a mix. But he said, just because something's ugly, or gory, or frightening, or all the above, does not mean it's uncanny. It could work in reverse, but not the other way too. So maybe all uncanny things are considered frightening, but not all frightening things are uncanny. So he said that what he thinks really counts that makes something uncanny is the mix of deja vu, distorted deja vu, a sense of I've kind of seen this before, but it's also different. What he called intellectual uncertainty. Your intellectual uncertainty mixed with this aesthetic component and neither explanation suffices without the other part too. And he said it has to tap into some sort of memory or knowledge that you've had. Your psyche's basically unconscious reveal. 
He really wrote extensively about the history of that word, the words referring to what's uncanny, and how basically that origin word could, you could take the root of it and apply it to a word meaning the opposite. So it's a topsy-turvy concept with a topsy-turvy origin. He concluded basically it's, quote, that species of the frightening that goes back to what was once well-known and had long been familiar, unquote. Once well-known, long been familiar, appearing in a new, strange-to-you, unsettling way. Again, though, there was that thought it was also an unconscious reveal, like your psyche was revealing something that was supposed to stay private. So that's why pop culture has really used doppelgangers, what is seen as uncanny, bearing an uncanny resemblance to yourself, as these physical representations of the thoughts, the part of your psyche you hope to keep in the shadows the self you didn't want to share with the world. That's why people often interpret the double in those stories as representative of the most vulnerable slash cringy emotions that you don't want people to know about. The lust, the love, the attempts to be intimate, like in The Student of Prague, the desperation to be noticed, like in The Shadow. There's a whole Oedipal-esque sexual component to some analyses, too, that ties into the need for lust. We won't get into that analysis today, but that is a very popular way to refer to this stuff. Many ways to interpret what that embodiment is of, but it's basically of something you're embarrassed about and you want to mentally separate yourself from a bit. Detach yourself, distance yourself from that part of you. So Freud actually disagreed with some other people with their definition because he argued they focused too much on the un part of unfamiliar, and he focused more on the familiar part, like it's too familiar. This is the side of you you write about in your diary, you know so well and keep very close to you, don't tell anyone. When that stuff comes out, that's what is leaving you feeling like this is uncanny. But he also points out how what's uncanny can also differ based on the circumstances. For example, if you see the number 50, that's whatever, that's not uncanny or weird. But if you see the number 50 four times in one day, you might start being like, whoa, that's weird. Why did that number have to do with my life today that often? Or when you wander, you're lost, you're looking for your location, and you end up circling back at where you started again and again. Like, whoa, I've been walking forever. How am I back here? Those moments where you feel like, this doesn't make sense. What's wrong here? I can't put my finger on what's wrong here. Those are uncanny moments. So Freud offers a real interesting take on fairy tales and storytelling, period. Because he says, it's interesting that fairy tales do not feel uncanny. And he says it's because of audience buy-in. So when we hear a story with the assumption it is true and something happens, we are more likely to feel like, whoa, that's uncanny. That's a weird story. But when we go into a story already believing, yeah, this is a fictional tale, we don't have the same type of quick reaction towards shock or fear or unsettled vertigo, whatever. So he says another nuance that should go with the uncanny definition is that sense of the audience feels betrayed because they were under the impression that something was grounded in a truth that it ends up not being. Their preconceived notions about how the world works were questioned, which threw them for a loop. 
the way they thought things would work, not coincidentally, were disrupted by what feels like something too strange and specific to be a coincidence. I'll keep going back to the word vertigo because it's that sense of your world is being turned upside down, the ground is out from under you, what is happening, it's going against what you thought was typical. So it's uncanny if it taps into a long buried suppressed part of your psyche, if it brings to life a part of you you've tried to keep buried, if it has a component that requires reality testing, if it's reality tested and not automatically deemed surely a fictional tale and it's really happening and you have the sense it's really happening, but shouldn't. It should be staying in the realm of fiction. And you take into account psychological and aesthetic implications. All that stuff together sums up when you feel like you're in the uncanny valley. He reiterates this by talking about the story the Sandman used to scare kids into going to bed. Like, hurry up or the Sandman will get you, throw sand in your eyes, then your eyes will pop out of your head and he'll pocket them and steal them. I know, it's terrible. Don't tell your kid that story, but it is a way to get them to go to bed. Anyway, the Sandman can be applied to a lot of what Freud says about what our doppelgangers do for us psychologically. Some people really focus on Olympia, a character who's a lifelike doll, but he actually doesn't view Olympia as a big part of the story at all. He views the Sandman himself as the big symbolic character, not this doll, this living doll. The Sandman's main character is Nathaniel, and he has this childhood trauma that he associates Sandman with. This guy in his life, Coppelius, scares him, and he starts to think this guy is Sandman, or looks a lot like him. So it triggers bad Sandman warning memories of childhood, hearing that story in childhood, when he looks at this guy. That only gets worse when his dad dies in an explosion while this guy is at their house. He goes to Coppola, which turns out to be Coppelius's double, his doppelganger, gets the spyglass from him and sees his new crush, this doll Olympia, through it. He does fall ill, though, so readers are left wondering how much of this is just like a fever dream. He falls in love with her, but he also has another breakdown when he looks at her right in the eyes, the eyes that the Sandman gave her. During a break, he tries throwing her off a building, and Capilius basically says he'll tire himself out eventually. Nobody run to the rescue, just let him get out his frustration. He has another break when he, through that spyglass again, sees this Capilius. So whether seeing Coppola or Capilius, either version triggers that break in him because in his mind he associates this Sandman-type character with childhood trauma. The story ends with Nathaniel jumping off the building and dying. And a big takeaway is the mind of a child and how trauma sticks with you. Because a big part of the doppelgangers is representing a part of you that you've long repressed. Tucked away in your mind, not unpacked it, and that memory to him has to do with the Sandman fear he got every time he heard the story. That trauma he never dealt with then manifested into who otherwise might have been the love of his life. Freud then kind of counter-argues himself to point out how just because it's a repressed memory does not mean it's uncanny. It also has to, and then he goes into detail about the reality testing requirement. It needs to be up for debate how real it is for the uncanny to take place. 
Also worth noting is the Sandman story really emphasizes the symbolism of the eyes. The eyes, the windows to the soul, the apple of our eyes, all those phrases representing how much sight clarity this terminology makes sight feel like. The way to get into a new world. It's a whole possibilities filled symbol. And the fact he notes the meaning of the Sandman taking what one could argue is the worst thing he could take, people's eyes, people's sense of seeing the world around them metaphorically too, also kind of reminds me of Espa's story. Remember, Karina has this evil eye. She also has that power where her visions, her future predictions come to her once the camera zooms in and we see through her eye, through her literal eye. Then in the first place, the Espa alter egos, their duels, their doubles, are called eyes, A-E-S. And in the Savage video, there's that evil eye of sorts in the background. And adding to that sense of this is surreal, maybe not uncanny, because we do know Espa's story is fiction, but still surreal, is the fact that Karina has this bionic arm when she also has that evil robot eye. Now bigger picture, lots to unpack here. Let's back up and summarize what the double has represented. In pop culture, philosophy, psychology, the SMCU, tying everything together into a few main categories. The first one is the double as a source of mind-bending, twisting your perception of what's real and what isn't. Kwanya is perfectly epitomizing that, because it's everything and nothing. It is a place that is limitless, a plane of existence, beyond space and time, in a category all its own, very undefined though. It has a term, making it specific, but it's also pretty vague what Kwanya even is, and how real it is, and how real what happens there is. It's hard to know with Aspa when they're IRL and when it's some sort of virtual reality, because sometimes they literally break the glass, break the barrier between dimensions. Or you see like Giselle and Savage, that the walls ripple like ponds, like it's all a mirage around them. They have some songs like Next Level, where the lyric is literally, this is the real world, I'm awake. But then in Savage, they have lyrics like, I'm locked up in the hallucination frame. So their doubles really complicate the picture of this is what me is, this is what the real me, the real me's existence looks like. So the double is a source of twisting reality, mind-bending. There's also the double as a representation of your most unfiltered self. Remember, Freud viewed it as tapping into these primitive instincts, your most inner feelings, unfiltered, that as you get older you grow more and more fearful of revealing to the public. An uncanny character was viewed as symbolic of this, like in Sandman, with that living doll, thought to represent Nathaniel's fixations. Otto Rank talked about the student of Prague as a way to show the lust of the main characters being interrupted by that double who jumped into action whenever the student and the countess seemed like they were about to get intimate. And Freud called beauty one of those inhibited aims, his word choice for this subliminal manifestation of eroticism. So the double as confusion, the double as lust, greed, there's also the double as a vehicle for fear and uncertainty. Naomi Klein mentions how doppelganger portrayals in a lot of movies and shows and books, they come about in periods of historical strife and instability. Probably it's the same with zombie movies and stuff, times of apocalyptic thinking. Somehow we also want to pay attention to fictional versions of our greatest fears of the moment, as if we can use them to glean some sort of hope or instructions from them. 
The Student of Prague actually came out amid the German Empire collapsing, so there was a huge sense at the time of feeling lost, searching for a new sense of belonging. So that's why it really resonated with the time. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, quote, Power ceases in the instant of repose. It resides in the moment of transition from a past to a new state, unquote. Relatedly, the double can be like a vehicle for where to store your bad feelings, the stuff that gnaws at your conscience you kind of put away. Freud viewed your conscience as coming from this place broken off in your ego. So the ego basically is where you cannot self-criticize. You cannot look at yourself with a critical gaze. You cannot scrutinize, censor, that kind of thing. So the ego has like a chip broken off of it that gets severed from it. And that part of the ego is your conscience. And that is where the double loses power. So the double thrives in the most narcissistic recesses of your mind. Not where the conscience is. Operation Shylock sums it up as this intrigue in yourself as if you're like a spy watching yourself with fascination. My theory is that the Black Mamba in Espa's story is that manifestation of their double in a way. It's where they're storing their fears, their guilt, all of that stuff. Their dark impulses. They have lyrics about the temptation that swallows you, your existence swallowing all the greed. Black Mamba is literally eating up, thriving, sustaining on greed in a sense of superiority. They also, I think, kind of separate themselves from their guilt through their eyes because part of the reason they turn into them, like when Karina has to turn into her digital self before beating someone up in girls, is not just technical, but something deeper and psychoanalytical. Like, they cannot be in the headspace, even if they were to have the physical capability to use their superpowers without changing forms, they wouldn't do it because they need to feel like they're in an alter ego body to feel mentally permitted to go forth and commit violence in their superhero fights. That's how I view it. I also think Taemin, Kai, some other SM Entertainment artists in their fictional realms, their storytelling, they separate themselves from their guilt too for their own criminal reasons. The Taemin robbery, the Kai short film that showed he was looking sus on CCTV, like he was coming back from committing some crime. Then there's the double as a mini-me, which has to do with the ego boost. The ego boost relates to childhood because, like I said before, I talked about this a bit in a TXT episode, actually, talking about Neverland and its representation, what it means to not grow up. A big actual just psychological milestone is when you start to distinguish the I from the you, basically. You can recognize the other versus the self as distinct. When you're a kid, it's really me, 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 and part of that is just part of your brain development, or lack thereof. So anyway, the double has to do with that tapping into that childlike instinct, not just because, as Freud put it, that's where the more primitive way of behaving is, your more natural instincts, not shaped by society yet, but also related to that childlike mentality, because the double is sometimes representative of youth. Youth in terms of death still being very far away, and youth in terms of possibilities. It's notable in The Student of Prague, the student is asked, do not kill the Baron in your sword fight, because he's the last surviving heir to the family. The compulsion to preserve family lines, to keep an heir, keeping it going. The double is often used like that to show the sense of, as Otto Rank put it, the double is the original insurance against death. 
your insurance that you won't be forgotten and fully leave this earth. A fear tapped into with that movie, Duel, about the woman who thought she was about to die of a terminal illness and wanted her parents to not grieve her absence. So in ways overt and subtle, the double is a way to channel the fear of death and erasure. In its interesting When in Klein's book, she talks a bit about mini-me's, the concept of the child as the parent's doppelganger. The doppelganger in the context of parents who are stage parents in some ways, for lack of a better term. The ones who are very putting pressure on their kids a lot to do what they did as a kid, to enter the beauty pageants, to play the sports they played, whatever. They want to live vicariously through their kid again, their mini-me, or they want their kid to turn out like them or better. That desire to mold your kid into your likeness, she has a really interesting way to analyze that tendency, which we can talk more about later. So the double is reality bender. The double is a vehicle for fear, confusion, instability, guilt. The double as a duplicate, insurance against death, insurance against being forgotten. And this part I'm going to try to explain carefully. It's very weird and ironic. But the double is representative of nothing meaning anything and everything meaning its opposite. Up is down, down is up, and everything is arbitrarily defined. So let me try to explain what I mean. I have a sociology major, so I'm going to kind of focus more on my study of this concept. So if you have a more psychology-trained or otherwise-trained background and want to add your own angle to this, feel free to message me. would love to keep this discussion going. But anyway, I'm coming at it from a sociological angle the most. In sociology, you learn about how the world is artificial, like nothing is real because humans make stuff. Nothing means anything until humans define it. And definitions can change over time because we change them. We rewrite and remake the world all the time. For example, is a book a book? A book is nothing, but we gave it the term book. If someday we were to say it's actually called a bookie, I don't know, then that would be the new definition, the new term. The old term would be viewed as false, not the real term. We redefine what's real, what the terms of this existence are. Things mean nothing, but we assign labels to them. So sociology is all about that analysis of why we do that, the meaning-making humans do. A doppelganger is both you and not you. Quanya is everything, limitless, but limitless also means nothing. What you call real is not really real. We just as a society decide collectively to act as if it is indeed real. Things are not given legitimacy by their very nature. Humans give them a certain nature and reach a consensus about that nature. That's why societies are more fragile, more malleable than people think. We're always remolding reality. So understanding the doppelganger requires understanding that up can be down and down can be up, that things can feel like they're opposites. That ironically makes sense for something to not make sense anymore. The phrase, clothes make the man, is a real good example of this arbitrariness of a status symbol, what makes a man? How do you define a man? Like in the story The Shadow, quote, the shadow was in fact very well dressed and this made a man of him, unquote. What really makes a man is indeed questioned in The Sandman 2 when Nathaniel is treated like a doll more than the literal one. She's treated more like a human and he has his arms and legs screwed off by this Capilius. 
The world's constant state of change, ironically, change being the only constant, can be very scary, and that is why some people cling to words, like in the shadow, when person A spent his life writing. There's this book called The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour, and he basically attests to that. He describes it as violent, a violent tendency to write, our extreme need to, again, not be forgotten, have something in print, some tangible proof of what's in our heads coming out, what is in our heads being put into the world. The way actions are preferred over words because words change more than we think is clear in Operation Shylock. Quote, where everything is words, you'd think I'd have some mastery and know my way around, but all this churning hatred, all of life a vicious debate. No, I'd be better off in the jungle, where a roar is a roar and no one is hard put to miss its meaning. Unquote. The words person A spent his life working on in the shadow, once he tried to spread the word, no one cared at that point. It had become kind of irrelevant. So it, quote, was of as much value to most people as a nutmeg would be to a cow, unquote. I don't know much about cows, but I have a feeling I know what that simile means. The double talks about feeling ideas, feeling them, not just thinking them, which further adds on to that thought. It's really important to people to do, not just say. Which is why doppelgangers can trip you up, because what are they doing in your name is way scarier than what someone might do in your writing. Again, there's the irony. Your doppelganger is your manifestation of fears, and your fears come to life. There are so many great quotes from that essay called Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson that go to this point. I'm going to skip around, but here is all direct quotes from that really fascinating writing. Oh, by the way, this is old, so man was the default, but when I say manhood and what men must do and he, it's persons, people, what they should do. There's no default. Again, see, language changes over time. Anyway, society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint stock company in which the members agree for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. Under all these screens, I have difficulty to detect the precise man you are. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital and speak the rude truth in all ways. Do your work and I shall know you. Do your work and you shall reinforce yourself. It's basically his way of saying we need to value more action over words. And again, that's the irony of a doppelganger. They are all action. And then you become about words. You're talking. You're thinking about the doppelganger. You're the one fixated, trying to write down what happens because you can't believe this and you have to tell someone about it. Make sure they don't forget this happened. But you who's writing all this down, you're the one who's not living. They are living. So who's the real one here? And who should count as the shadow, the one just observing? Remember, each ESPA member has a key weakness. 
I won't recap them all here, but remember the main weakness of Winter's character is gossip and rumors, letting other people's words get to her and consume her mind. She's living in minds of others, and that is her error. It's interesting that in Next Level, they sing about the illusion, that's the word choice, the illusion of being criticized, the sense that the names people call them are really not real, they're not as legit, as concrete, as worth considering true, as the illusion is crafted to make them seem. Emerson argued that we have to live in the present because the past and future are so misremembered by the writers. I'm not saying writing is terrible. Obviously, I love it so much. Check me out on Substack. But anyway, what he's saying, I think, is really about how much people focus too much on getting preoccupied with language over life, over just getting out there. And that means you're stuck in the past, rereading something metaphorically, or you're trying to get in the future, write down a dream scenario. And then you don't live in the here and now, which you should stop to cherish because it's less solid, it's always changing, way more than you think. Quote, man postpones or remembers. He does not live in the present, but with reverted eye laments the past, or heedless of the riches that surround him, stands on tiptoe to foresee the future. He cannot be happy and strong until he too lives with nature in the present above time. Unquote. The doppelganger, therefore, is kind of a a time capsule, hence why some people compare it to like a mini-me, a way parents want to go revisit the past or project an ideal new future path for them through their children. But the true happiness comes with not worrying about who they'll become, but just letting them be who they are. And I love using the phrase above time here, pointing out how time in itself is also a social construct. That's why we have daylight savings time. Yeah, we can just randomly, as a society, say, yep, time change, because it's arbitrary. It's socially created, and so if you don't worry about those changing constructions, you can enjoy the present. The doppelganger then is, again, ironic as a tool to seemingly protect yourself, but it's also a perfect example of doing the opposite, keeping yourself dealing with fighting your past and or future. So this also adds to the irony of Quanya, which describes itself as a place above space and time constraints. So isn't that the present moment? Isn't that more definitive of life right now than the things that are considered real life? What's really arbitrary and fake? I love this Emerson quote so freaking much. It's a long one, but I think it's awesome. The centuries are conspirators against the sanity and authority of the soul. Time and space are but physiological colors, which the eye makes, but the soul is light. Where it is, is day. Where it was, is night. And history is an impertinence and an injury, if it be anything more than a cheerful epilogue or parable of my being and becoming. Man is timid and apologetic. He is no longer upright. He dares not say, I think, I am, but quote some saint or sage. He is ashamed before the blade of grass or the blowing rose. The roses under my window make no reference to former roses or better ones. They are for what they are. There is no time to them. The thought, the good, shall be wholly strange and new. It shall exclude example and experience. Unquote. Yeah, it's an interesting counterargument to learn from the past and prepare for the future. Outlooks. The doppelganger makes you question what you think and are. So when you can't fill in the blank, I think or I am, and instead quote as he says some saint or sage, that's because you've lost yourself, your sense of identity, by trying to split it in two. 
Recall in Quania, the characters have to follow three rules. One is about not getting lost by following the butterflies, a perfect example of change. They've metamorphosized. Anne are viewed as a total antidote to the Black Mamba's power, accepting a changing present moment. So follow the butterflies. Do not take anything. Don't covet what belongs to Quania, is the exact wording of the rule. Don't take past tokens and try to hold on to them. Relatedly, never look back. Follow the winds of change. Don't take stuff from the past and never look back. Those are the rules of Quania. So ironically, the best advice for life is coming from Quanya, the place deemed a mirror world, a dream world, the topsy-turvy one, has the best advice. And the lingering in the past and future, the bad way to live, is in what they're calling the reality. Klein said, quote, The idea that two strangers can be indistinguishable taps into the precariousness at the core of identity. The painful truth that, no matter how deliberately we tend to our personal lives and public personas, the person we think we are is fundamentally vulnerable to forces outside of our control, unquote. In Black Mamba, us the sing about, quote, is me in the mirror you, or is it just a distorted vision, unquote. And that professor in the USPA short film number one has to answer a student who's like, just because our eyes, our alter egos, are uploaded by our internet data does not mean they are a true amalgamation, a true depiction of who we are physically in real life. And the professor responded, quote, you can say that, but eventually we have to face the fact that it is one of myself, unquote. So at the end of the day, he's saying, you can say it's not really like me, my digital self, but it is at the end of the day you, and you have to own that. What are you trying to separate yourself from into a persona? At the end of the day, you still have to live with that persona because it's you. Like how Philip Roth has to live with that bad nickname that he gave other Roth at the end of the day. It also has very interesting implications now to think about what Kai said in a behind-the-scenes video from making one of his short films, which he talked about something, a scene happening in, quote, not his body. So, could have been a body double, but I do find that wording worth flagging. It's very interesting because it brings to mind that duality of another person, another Kai doing his bidding. Doppelganger cites the premise of a second body, as talked about by Daisy Hildyard, who basically wrote that we kind of have a guilt-ridden second body responsible for all sorts of larger-scale impacts. So she wrote about it as a view of you as one body, and your second body is responsible for more than you, but like your complicity in larger-scale decisions, like government policies in your name. Klein actually brings up how, back in 2022, South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol, tried to gin up support for his campaign and connect with young people with an AI version of him, who was deemed way more likable. I'll link to some reading about it on my site. But yeah, people liked AI Yoon way more than IRL Yoon, at least young people did, which again brings up an interesting note about self-branding. And Klein describes self-branding as another form of doubling yourself, still doppelganging, still just adding on to yourself, not separating yourself as much as you think. I find it really interesting that Klein said, quote, a poorly managed brand is distinctly less consequential than a poorly managed soul, but on the other hand, the consequences occur in this realm, not the next, unquote. Like, actually, you should view managing your brand as less of a big deal than your soul, but which one gives you comeuppance now as opposed to in the afterlife?
Yeah, you can see why throughout reading Doppelganger and this other pop culture related to it, I thought of Espa's story so often. The whole premise being that virtual alter ego creation, curation, maintenance, and its pitfalls. Klein said, quote, Doppelganger stories are never only about them. They're always about us, unquote. In a thematically similar vein are quotes like from the shadow, quote, the shadow was master now and the master became the shadow, unquote. And quote, all men have my blood and I have all men's, unquote. That's from Emerson, acknowledging complicity in coming about by your mere existence. Back to talking about the butterfly resembling change. Klein pointed out how what us are discovering, the pitfalls of a digital self, thinking it would help them. She said, quote, Brands are not built to container multitudes. They demand fixedness, stasis, human statues. The form of doubling that branding demands of us is antithetical to the healthy form of doubling that is thinking and adapting to changing circumstances, unquote. She talks about the sense of vertigo that can come from feeling the ground come out from under you, which actually in Kwanya sometimes is literal in their music videos. The ground comes out from under them. They feel unstable. So brand maintenance is about keeping calm amid the chaos, whereas the healthy form of doubling, she says, would be learning to handle the chaos. So yes, there is a healthy way to kind of view yourself as multifaceted, but the way it's depicted in pop culture, largely negative because of the ways it's used. That sense of vertigo is kind of alluded to in Operation Shylock when he talks about, quote, a total lack of gravity, reliance at too many key points, and absence of inner coherence, unquote. People think they have a very sure, fixed sense of self and might show an authentic brand image online, but that's not possible online. That's too flat and consistent. People are always just remolding themselves. Remember, change is constant, ironically. From Operation Shylock, quote, People are trying to transform themselves all the time. The universal urge to be otherwise. All to be more like themselves, or less like themselves, or more or less like that exemplary prototype whose image is theirs to emulate or to repudiate obsessively for life, unquote. As Ispa try to sync up with their eyes, it may seem like a noble mission, a good one. But really, what if they're just trying to emulate something they shouldn't? Espa seem to think they're doing the healthy type of doubling. They use the term novice as this doting term, a term of endearment for their digital selves, a glowing compliment. But should it be? The shadow describes the illness of people as being the loss of their shadows. So like in Espa's story, it's like, you poor thing, you lost your shadow. But maybe you needed to to embrace the present moment, which ironically means evolving and changing into a new thing. Metaphorically, what if they want you to keep the shadow of a caterpillar and now it's time for you to make the shadow of a butterfly? With so much of this context in mind, different ways to consider the double in its meaning, now let's look at Yuno's new short film, Nexus. It starts with a voiceover, wishing him good morning, saying it's a fine day in Nexus, and he dances through the street. While singing things like, quote, you are your own prisoner, life is a daily suppression of your truth, unquote. Like what Emerson said, you are just not yourself once you start taking on the arbitrary terms and definitions you give way too much power over you every day. He's kind of at peace with himself as one person when he sings, quote, Look at my reflection, the hidden me in the mirror, the me I've been dreaming of. Open both eyes, run away tonight. Ah, uh, there we go, an open your eyes metaphor again. 
He then says, quote, I gotta wake you up from vain illusions. I am my only wannabe, unquote. So yeah, to truly live, he's gonna not focus on socially constructed, silly terminology, superlatives. The problem is he was pursuing this in virtual reality. So he snaps back to, takes off the VR headset. His main character is Noah in this, by the way, not Yuno. And he's feeling like he enjoyed it. It was a fun trip into a virtual world where he was just happy as himself. But now that he's back IRL, any doubling he does now is probably not the same in terms of the consequences and intent. The AI Sarah, played by Karina, but because she goes by Sarah in this, I assume that means she's playing a different character in the story. She warns, quote, human habits all need to go, unquote. That sense of there can only be one seems like it's ominous here. Like, Noah can't stay in this equation, just me. He's too human. He was too embracing of not doubling, of being his full self, viewing himself in the moment as the only role model. Noah sits in his bath, looking distraught, sings about repetition being hell, and says, quote, I might be nothing in real life, but in Nexus, I can be anything, unquote. There he was, living his best life in Nexus, where he did not worry about terminology. He assigned himself whatever in the moment felt right. He has all these moments he glitches throughout different dimensions. When the dimension is more real than another is intentionally up to interpretation, intentionally unclear. That sense that your other selves in other dimensions are manifestations of greed and things like that came up as this alarm goes off in the video. He tries to hide in the video while an alarm goes off and he says, quote, that arrogant stare of yours, my act's unstoppable. Yours and mine, he used in that pair of sentences. Talking about the altar, ego in at the end of the day, it is his ego. He continues to consult this Alexa of sorts for directions, guidance, as he maneuvers this VR world, which he did jump back into. Sorry if I didn't say that already. Noah tries to navigate what is considered just a B-tier game level, but he's so frustrated he jumps off this ship, pops into a different setting as if he's a fish out of water, like spitting up water, soaking wet, and now he's backstage, behind the scenes of a glamorous circus-type performance. So performances full of makeup, big fancy schmancy outfits, they're so ready for showtime, are dancing and singing backstage, and he literally looks like a fish out of water. But it's interesting that he basically was literally gasping for air like he literally was given new life when he became surrounded by people living loud and proud not worrying about what people would think being unconventional over the top dramatic on purpose at this point in the video the song of his that plays is Vujade where he sings about feeling like his time was sold and now he's going through life like a zombie Quote, can't tell if I'm living or being lived, chase or being chased, disillusioned and lost, everything feels strange, unquote. He also references the Truman Show, which we talked about in a 17 Talk episode about the FML era, so he can't tell who's real and who is part of a simulated reality. He sings every day disappears in a mirage, the past becomes unreliable, a close-up of Noah smiling at the camera seems innocuous. Then he waves his hand over his face, and Sarah's face replaces his. So there's that sense, everything's not what it seems. Everything is ironic, topsy-turvy, up is down, down is up. And his image changed like that. She then walks with him into this empty white space to tell him more about how this simulation is going, basically. 
She warns him his real self can't live in this game forever, and that this world will become his reality if that happens. Again, everything is just topsy-turvy. The game could be reality, reality can then become a game. She continues to talk kind of patronizingly about the human brain. He says, Sarah, you're just bits of data. Then her image indeed just dissolves into pixels. She keeps talking. But he just called out that she's maybe trying to control him a bit too much. She's getting a bit too conceited with her sense of importance and knowledge. Sound familiar? She's starting to seem like an ego. This virtual consultant shaping his decisions is kind of starting to emulate this unchecked ego. She actually says, quote, I've come to believe I have a soul, unquote. And she starts to whisper something as the screen fades to black. Then he sings about watching the movie start again. And in the video, in the music video, we see Noah with the VR gear beside him on like a movie set. And someone yells out cut and there are credits and it's a whole, yep, turns out this was a movie premise. Which means basically for this music video, you know was playing a character who was playing a character who tried to put parts of himself into other characters while honoring his true character, even though he forgot which one was the true character. Yeah, it's really meta and weird, but it really is a great, understandable, symbolic story if you look at it through this context of everything I've just talked about. This sense that he's doubling himself, he's existing in different dimensions as a way to kind of represent all sorts of instincts, parts of him. But by doing so, by kind of horcruxing his way through life, he's basically sacrificed so much of himself. And now they're sort of taking on lives of their own and could have that there can only be one of us. And now I'm really the one who should stay existing mentality. Like we've become more you than you, the more you gave up of yourself for alter egos. So Sarah might actually be onto something when she says that she's becoming more soul-filled than Noah. Like, Noah is being extracted into an ever-strengthened, confident Sarah. Trust me, there are even many more angles I took notes on and was ready to talk about today, but I think I'll just really quickly go through them and not elaborate too much. I was also going to talk about Descartes, a philosopher who talked about a meditation, a view of the world as this intentionally deceptive illusion. Kant, Immanuel Kant, is a philosopher who talked about the synthetic means through which we get to know the world and become, quote, their own agents of deceit, unquote. When talking about a second body, metaphorically, Pierre Bordeaux had some interesting, relevant thoughts about symbolic violence, the sense that there's this complicity through enacting it. There's even more to say about the there can only be one mentality, about what it says about your own inner conflicts to reconcile the parts of yourself. The way online interactions are not a real, authentic connection in the way we think they are. Klein talks about that in our escape into digital realms, quote, a fake communal experience in those lonely and anxious times, unquote. As an autistic person, the chapter of Klein's book that really, really just was so powerful to me to read, so emotional, is about autism and it getting roped into anti-vax narratives and being treated as this terrible disease and all those harmful, let's fix you ways of describing it as a big issue, you poor thing, which relates to the parent wanting a mini-me premise. Like, what happened to my kid? I envisioned having a kid who is not like this and then realizing maybe you shouldn't have tried to manifest what your kid would be like and just met them when they showed up. And if they ended up autistic, so be it. But anyway, 
I love, love, love the chapter, the way she talks about how people like me deserve to be thought of way differently, more capable. She actually talked about us in a way I will think about forever, really. I honestly feel like putting it on a whiteboard or something. She was thinking about how autistic people maybe don't mirror the world around us much. But she said, quote, do we really need more mirrors? How about some portals to somewhere new, unquote? I love that. Other people mirror the world around them. I'm off to myself exploring new whole portals of looking at the world. So there's so much more I could say about that chapter. Fascinating history, some troubling history I didn't know about the high versus low functioning autism spectrum distinction and some unexpected Nazi roots, but also some beautiful anecdotes throughout that chapter. It's ultimately about inclusivity and a sense of belonging and accepting us as we are, not as burdens or damaged goods. I want to end with that not just as a further endorsement of how much this book is a powerful read, a must read, but to point out how when we do try to just mirror stuff, double ourselves, separate up ourselves into pieces, Klein gets at the question of why and what happens when we do that. What do we sacrifice? What doesn't happen when we're focused on the multiplication, the dilution? Quote, I suspect that much of the mirroring and doubling comes down to who and what we cannot bear to see, to really look at. There are many different ways to try to outrun our shadows. Succumbing to conspiracy worlds is only one of them. Unquote. What shadows are we trying to outrun? That's a big bottom line. So I'm not saying doubling yourself or viewing yourself as having a different person coexisting in you is bad inherently. Remember, nothing is inherently anything. We define stuff. But anyway, it's just, it's up to, what it's what you make of it. It could be your portal to a new way to see the world, but it could also be your roadblock, even though you thought it was the opposite. The book is very kind of frightening. I mean, if you really think about it, how scary it is that Naomi Klein has spent years being mistaken for someone else with values she vehemently disagrees with. But she ends on a surprisingly hopeful note about a new way to think about doubles. Because like I said before, so many examples are of the negative side to it, of when doubling is a hindrance to a good life as opposed to helping you get through it. And how you could reframe it is not this duel to the death, not this sense in the movies of oh my gosh they're out to get me this other person is too much like me in the world it's uncanny it's uncomfortable get rid of it stamp it out but she says actually what's so bad about people just like you being out there what if we learned to kind of coexist and what kind of world could we redefine if we were open and not so fearful of an other us Quote, a bigger part of being human, and certainly of living a good life, is not about how we make ourselves in those shifting sands of self. It's about what we make together, unquote. She also has this really interesting coral analogy, like why can't we just be more like coral? Basically, why do we feel such a need to attain, like we can only attain our sense of fulfillment if we are very, very individual focused. Why don't we feel a sense of accomplishment and full identity creation when we're in community, making something stronger than the sum of its parts? 
So your doubles could actually be real mirrors, not funhouse mirrors, but we could really take a hard look right into them and use them as a way to better understand ourselves, what role we play in the world around us, and then shape it more to our liking. So doubles could be used for a powerful force for good, which I think Espa's eyes will hopefully be reprogrammed to do, and further SMC adventures will hopefully keep interrogating that question of what's real here, what's not, and what are my other selves up to and why? What are they doing instead? What are they running from? What shadows are we trying to outrun? And what would happen if we just faced them head on? I hope it gave you a ton to think about. Thank you all so much for sticking with me, and I will talk to you all again about a brand new topic very, very soon. Bye, everybody.